Welcome back to the Axiom Youth Podcast. This lesson is being taught by Brother Galleon from IBC. This lesson is from our conference called Rise Up. Brother Galleon is preaching on the calling of the Lord. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Dealing with the question of how do you answer, how do you fulfill the call of God on your life, um, no matter really what, no matter what position in life you're in, uh, God has a calling and God has a purpose and God has a plan uh, for your life. And how do you go about to answer that? How do you go about to be sensitive to that? So that's some of the things we're going to explore today. So I hope you came with your your mind open. You got enough coffee and caffeine so that you're awake. I know we probably had a late night last night, but we're going to just have a little bit of time to kind of focus our hearts together. So I wonder if before Brother Galleon comes, let's just close our eyes and we're just going to just say a quick prayer that God would just help us uh, because I really think that God has something for us in this session today. So let's pray. God, we love you. And God, we're thankful, Lord, for this time that we've had. Thank you for the great move that you just came in and broke through, God, on us last night. And for all the miracles that were done, countless miracles, God, and just in people's hearts and lives turning toward you. We're thankful for that. And God, I pray that you would just continue that work this morning, God, as we open up our hearts to receive from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just talk to us and that you would help us today. What to do your will and to answer your call. And God, we give you praise and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Brother Galleon, thank you for being here. Give Brother Galleon a hand as he comes. Thank you, Brother Turner. Amen. I won't take a lot of your time. I know we've got four students that are going to come up and talk a little bit, and I'd like for them to have some time to do that. And I think it's good because uh, everyone has probably asked the question, and if you haven't asked the question, you will. Uh, what is God's will for my life? How many has asked that question? How many is asking the question right now? And uh, it's, it's sometimes what, it's complicated, isn't it? And we always think that it's such a mystery. But let me tell you what God's will for your life is. This is not prophetic, but I'll, I'm just going to step out here on this limb. And uh, you want to know what God's perfect will for your life is? You ready? You better write this down. Is for you to know God's perfect will. That's it. God wants you to know His will. But the problem, we think, is we, we make it so mystical and we make it uh, almost unattainable and it's, it's so difficult. But probably, more than likely, if you have been praying for the will of God for your life and seeking His face and, and you've been in the Word of God, you probably, deep down, already know what God's will is for you. Probably. Because many times when I was a teenager, I wrestled with what I knew God was wanting me to do and what my own dreams and my own ideas consisted of. And I was in this battle because I was afraid that I wasn't good enough. I didn't have enough talent. I wasn't that type of a person to actually do what God was asking me to do. Anybody ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand on that. And so I think a lot of times we kind of know uh, what God's will is. Now, everyone has a different story, by the way. Everyone has a different calling. Everyone has a different experience. So don't try to make my experience your experience. Don't look uh, for what happened in my life or any of these students' life uh, to happen in your life because it will be unique to you. Some of you kind of started out and, and maybe um, kind of the will of God will be presented to you in an altar call where you're going to go down to an altar and begin to pray. 
and God will begin to speak to you. Others will, will maybe hear a word. Someone will come up, your pastor maybe, and lay hands upon you, begin to pray, and say something, and that, that will begin to facilitate what God's will for your life is. And then others may have a, a grandparent that may say, oh, I've been praying for you, and, and God's got a call on your life. You, you're probably going to be a preacher, or you're probably going to be a minister. And, and, and maybe, uh, as strange as that sounds, maybe that is God trying to open you up to the idea that there is something there. And so never, never just kind of uh, mark off anything. Mark off anything. How many has ever had uh, someone come and, and prophesy over you and, and say, this is the will of God for your life? And, and maybe it brought clarity and maybe it brought confusion. How many has ever had some, maybe it was a, a peer come and pray for you at an altar and say things and you walked away saying, well, is that it? Is that the will of God for your life? Well, here's some things I think you should take and you should apply everything that is spoken to you or prayed over you. I think you should run them through some filters. Is that okay? And what this means is, is when you hear something from someone else besides God himself, you need to filter it through some solid, unchangeable filters, okay? Because I believe this, and I may be completely wrong, uh, Pastor, I may be completely wrong, but I, I think this. I think God would rather speak to you personally than to speak through someone else to you. I just feel that. I really do. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't confirm through someone else. And so this is what I want to do. The first thing you should filter what someone says to you through is, number one, the Word of God. So when someone comes up and begins to pray for you, or you feel something, or a word is stated to you, or you're in your time of devotion and God speaks something to your spirit, you must make sure that it lines up with God's word. If anything is contrary to the word of God, it is not the word of God for you. It must line up. We've got one thing that we know is absolute truth. One thing given to mankind in the entire universe, and that is God's Word. It's forever settled in heaven. It doesn't change. It, it doesn't, it's not whimsical. It, it doesn't move or flux with society. It doesn't change with new fads or traditions that's presented. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God, it may not be what, what culture would say would be uh, the right thing or the cool thing, but it is God's Word. And the only way you're going to make it to heaven and the only way you're going to be blessed by God is staying in His Word and following His commandments. Amen? When Jesus met the lady at the well. And she began to ask these questions because she perceived that he was a prophet. He was more than a prophet, by the way. He was a savior. When she began to understand that this guy is not a normal guy, she wanted to know how and where do we worship. She asked, where do we worship, is what she asked. And Jesus told her how you're supposed to worship. And what did he say? He said it's irrelevant if you worship in Jerusalem or in this mountain where you have your false gods or in that mountain where you have your false gods. What's important for you to understand is you must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I, I preached this the other day to my Pentecostal evangelist class, Jeremiah and, and uh, Sam. But we've got a balance here that we have to maintain. This is why you have to run it through the Word of God. If all you do is just lean towards the Word of God, then you've got truth. 
But here's, the, here's, here's what you have to be careful with about truth. There's things in God's Word that must be understood through the Spirit. Because if all you take is just truth and the Word, then you can become legalistic. And you can become that person where there's no flow or move of the Holy Ghost. And so you become so rigid in your ideas and you, you follow the letter of the law and there's no room for error, there's no room for grace, there's no room for mercy. And you're at a place where everything you do is contingent on whether or not you'll make it to heaven or hell. You become a legalist. But we must have truth. You've got to have the word of God. Because that's our foundation. That's stability. That's what leads us on this roadmap called life. The other thing Jesus emphasized was you worship him not just in truth, but in what? In spirit. Now we love spirit. Spirit is that movement where, where you begin to feel and your emotions are connected and, and you begin to enter into new dimensions. But, you know, if all you've got is spirit, then you'll walk away from the foundations that are given to us in the word of God, like separation and godliness. And to know exactly what's expected of you on this journey of life, to know what God has required of his people, that's God's word. And so you can't just have all spirit. But you've got to have a balance between spirit and truth. You've got to have that balance. And so when you hear a word from God and you feel something or, or you think God is trying to speak to you, you know what you've got to do? You've got to filter it through his word. Filter it through his word. The next thing that you should filter it through, number two, the next thing, is that you need to filter it through your pastor. When someone comes and lay their hand upon your head, that's not your pastor. And they begin to speak something under the anointing or the inspiration of the spirit or the flesh. There's one other person that needs to know and you need to run it and filter it through and that's your pastor. God has given you your pastor for a purpose. He is your spiritual authority. He or she. That pastor is the shepherd of your soul. They will give account to God for you. Amen? So you walk up to your pastor and you say, this is what was spoken to me. I want to know how you feel about this. And you let your pastor tell you. Because that person that laid their hand on your head to pray for you has nothing invested in your life or your ministry. Nothing. They can say whatever comes to their mind and they can walk out of that door and they have no responsibility to you. They, they have no second thought to where you're going to end up or what's going to happen. I'm not against prophecy. I'm not against people operating in the gifts. Don't, get me, don't misunderstand me here at all. But what I'm saying is your pastor should have a greater voice in your life than any other human being on this earth. Amen? So the word of God and your pastor. I just say it like this. I've seen men come up and lay hands on someone and pray and tell them that they've been healed and turn around and walked out and that person was not healed. And that person is left in turmoil. And that person is left in great grief. And guess who has to pick up the pieces? The pastor does. So if you hear someone pray for you, you run it through God's word. If it's consistent with the word of God and then if it's consistent with what your pastor says, then you go from there. Number three, I believe this. I believe you should always filter through this. 
What has God been speaking to you about? What has God been speaking to you about? And is it consistent? Is it consistent? Because I don't believe God throws you something through someone else. I don't believe that God brings someone into your life to speak to you that he has not been dealing with you and you have been wrestling with for some time. When I was a kid, I wrestled with the call of God in my life. I wrestled with this. I began as far back as I can remember. And at a young age, I didn't understand what it was. I didn't know God was calling me to preach, brother. I just, I was at a place where in the middle of the night, God would wake me up. And I would, I would be in tears almost. And I would just feel lonely and, and disconnected. And I'd go set, for whatever reason, I'd go in the bathroom and sit on the bathroom floor. We had nice shag carpet in the bathroom. And uh, that was back in the old days. And I'd, I'd sit next to the tub and I'd just cry and, and pray. And, and I'd wrestle and, 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 and I'd, I'd argue and I didn't know. And, and then sometimes my, my parents would come in and they'd say, what in the world are you doing? And they'd say, go to bed. And uh, so I'd get up and, and not all the time, and they'd come in there and they'd say, what's wrong, what's wrong? I don't, I don't know what's wrong, I don't know. And maybe it was just that 11, 12-year-old emotional kid or 15-year-old or emotional kid, I don't know. But God was dealing with me. And then the older I got, the more I began to realize that maybe God is requiring something of me. Maybe God is asking me to do something for his kingdom. And then I got terrified and I said, but what can I do for the kingdom of God? I have no ability. I have no talent. I, I can't even talk to people. I, 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 don't, I don't even like having conversations with people. When I went to Bible school, my wife will tell you, she referred to me as the walking mute. That's what her name for me was. I was the shyest, most awkward, backward person. That's completely the opposite of what I am now. That's why I don't like personality tests. Okay? I'm against personality tests. I just want you to know. That's, put that on the record. J.D. Gagnon is against personality tests. You, don't want to, you want to know why? Because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good excuse for bad behavior, first of all. Secondly, I think it locks you in a box that you fear that you can never get out of, and you justify not getting out of that box. Some of you introverts think that, well, this is my personality. I'm an introvert. I'll always be an introvert. And guess what? You're limiting what God can do through you. So don't get stuck in your personality box because I think what you're doing is you're trying to tell God, this is why I can't. And so forget your personality test because if God calls you, he's going to unlock talents and ability that you do not even know that you possess. And I'm speaking from an introvert. I'm speaking from that. I didn't talk to anybody. I did not want, I was the invisible man all through high school. Nobody ever called on me because I willed myself invisible. If the teacher asked me a question and I had to stand up in front of the class, I would have probably passed out. I'm not lying. But you know what happened? The moment that I accepted God's call in my life, God slowly but gradually began to change my personality. Because this is what the kingdom of God consists of, people. People. You've got to reach people. You've got to talk to people. And God will change you as an individual. So don't say, don't make the excuse, well, I, I, I can't play. 
I can't sing. I can't preach. I can't speak. I can't do anything for the kingdom of God. I'm weird. I'm awkward. I'm backward. I'm strange. You may be all of that, but welcome to the kingdom of God because there's not any normal people in God's kingdom. We're all strange. We're all backward. We're all weird in our own ways. But guess what? When the anointing power of the Holy Ghost gets a hold of you and you open up your life to God's calling, God can do great things for you. So don't limit yourself. But God was dealing with me over and over again. And I ran from it. And I refused to fully accept what God wanted me to. I was 18 years of age. 17. Just graduated from high school. And uh, my mom was, was talking to me. And she begged me. She said, son, please. Would you, would you make a commitment to me? Would you, would you do your mama a favor? And when mom starts asking you to do something for her. You just do it. That's just the way it works with mom. And uh, she's got tears in her eyes, and, and she's, you know, she's just sitting there. She's, she's rubbing your shoulders and, uh, and just saying, would you do your mom a favor? And what, what grown 17-year-old boy would say, no, mama, I'm not going to do you nothing? Man, I'm telling you what, she got me, and, and she said, would you promise me you would go at least one semester to Bible school? I had my whole life already planned out. I, I was, I, I'd done away with this. No, there's no call of God. I have nothing to offer the kingdom. I'll go be a great saint. I wanted to go into the conservation uh, police officer. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to, I wanted to go out, spend every day in the woods, and I wanted to arrest people and kick doors down and, and catch them violating and breaking, uh, you know, laws that pertain to wildlife and poaching. I mean, that's what's what I wanted to, I wanted to become the, the Alaska State Troopers Wildlife Division. That's what, that was my ultimate goal, but, but I was going to work my way, and man, I was ready to do this, and mama said, would you give one semester to Bible school? And, uh, I didn't answer immediately. I wrestled through that day. And of course, I said, Mom, uh, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll do one semester. And so I came to Indiana Bible College, and all I wanted to do was fulfill one semester. That was it, one semester. One semester. <laughs> and I got, here's what happened. I actually uh, was going to go in the fall. I went to Alaska, and I spent the summer in Alaska. I keep looking at uh, good old Brother Dart. He's from Alaska. And I spent the summer in Alaska, and uh, I stayed late. I, I prolonged my little summer vacation, and I missed the first three weeks, maybe four weeks of school. And so when I got back, it was like, oh, well. It looks like I'll have to go in second semester because my mom was really wanting me to stay the whole year but now I can only do the one semester and fulfill that obligation. And, uh, and so I came in halfway through the semester, or halfway through the year, second semester, January. And when I came in, I just was going through the motions, and I was just trying to fulfill this obligation because I was ready to go do what I wanted to do. And I get through that semester, and about the end of the semester, probably six weeks before school's out, right after break, normal chapel service, God starts dealing with me again. I'd shut down and repressed every other move of God. I responded to a point. I prayed to a point. But here I was, and I'll never forget that chapel service where God began to deal with me again. And he began to challenge me. And I threw up all the excuses, and I wrestled with it. And in a chapel service at IBC, 
I begin to open my heart up and say, okay, God, okay, God, I, I, I'll let your presence just, just fulfill my life and, and touch me one more time, and I'm not going to resist anymore. But I didn't accept anything. A couple weeks later, in our homiletics class, uh, they slotted everyone to come down to the chapel. It was a preach-a-thon. And so we, we, we shut the whole school down pretty much. And uh, if you were in homiletics, where there was a large group in homiletics, they started at 9 in the morning, and they were going to go all the way to 2 o'clock, I think it was, in the afternoon. And every 10 minutes, we had a new preacher that was going to stand up and preach. And everyone in that class was required to be there and to speak. That meant me. My slot was at 10.30-something. And you know what I did? I slept in that morning and uh, got up and got dressed. And I waited until it was 15 minutes after my slot. And I walked down to the chapel. Because I, I, I couldn't do it. There's no way that I could get up in front of 200-plus and speak. There's no way I could make it happen. And I walked in the back of the chapel and I sat on the back row. And Jason Cox, who pastors in Illinois, he was uh, the student body president, saw me walk in and knew I'd miss my slot. The preacher sets down after they did their 10-minute, and Brother Cox gets up and said, at this time, we're going to have Jason Galligan and so-and-so and so-and-so. Please make your way to the platform because you're next on the docket. And I got caught, and I thought, oh, dear God. So I turned to the person next to me. I said, do you have a Bible? Do you have a Bible? And, and they hand me their Bible, and, I, and I'm flipping through the Bible, and I'm starting to shake, and, and I get up, and I start walking up, and I'm literally convulsing. I'm shaking so bad, and the muscles in my cheek are quivering, and, I, and I'm having almost a panic attack. And I walk up, and I open the Bible, and I'm standing there, and I'm going, and I don't even know, and I open my mouth. They put the microphone in my hand, and I open my mouth, and I have no idea what happened, but I know what I felt. And when I opened my mouth, something took over. The Holy Ghost fell upon me, and words began to come out that I didn't know, that I never rehearsed. Scripture began to come to me that I don't even remember reading, and God's anointing took over. And nine minutes later, I dropped that microphone on the pulpit, and people are standing with their hands lifted, and now I had it right in my face that I had to do something. And I ran to the back of that chapel. And I slid under the back row and I laid on my stomach and I began to repent to God for not responding and doing His will. And I made a vow at that moment that God, I'll be your preacher. Whatever you call me to do, I'll do. I accept this right now. And at that back row of that chapel service is where I gave my life to God. And I turned it over. I said, God, I don't know how it's going to work. But I'll be a preacher if you want me to be a preacher. I'll be a missionary if you want me to be a missionary. I'll go wherever you want me to go, and I'll do whatever you've asked me to do. And from that moment on, I said, that's it. I'm not turning back. I'm not turning back. Semester ended. And I was in a pickle. Because I came to Bible school, I had one sports jacket and two pairs of dress pants. That's what I came to Bible school with. All you fancy, dressed-up, suit-wearing Bible school students. And uh, I had three dress shirts, and, and I wore them every day. I borrowed suits off everybody that had a suit that 
came close to fit. And I borrowed suits every Sunday off friends, Bible school students. And my roommate and I were the same size. And he had a new suit for every day of the week. And so I just wore his suits half the time. And nobody even knew the difference. It just happened. And, uh, and so uh, I thought, man, if I'm going to be a preacher and do this thing, i got to buy some suits. So I thought, well, if I'm going to buy suits, i got to make money because those things are expensive. They're like, I mean, I can go down to Jay Riggs and I, it's like 80 bucks for a suit. I can't afford that. And so uh, I started looking for a job. And, and uh, so I, I got a little job and, and uh, I was working money. And then my cousin called me and said, hey, he said, uh, our, our cousin, Joe White, has firework stands and runs these firework stands all over Tennessee. And we can make big money. He's going to pay us $150 a day if we go and set tents up all over these little towns. And then at the end of that two week after setting up all these big tents, $150 a day, he's going to let us have a tent. And we're going to sell fireworks and all, all of that profit that we're going to make, he's going to split it with us. Oh, man, I, I, was, thinking, I was thinking thousands of dollars. I was thinking, man, I could probably, I could have seven suits. Man, I, I was going to be the best dressed novice preacher in all of Pentecost. It was going to happen. I was excited about this. And, and so I'm like, sign me up for it. Man, I quit my job. We drove down to East Tennessee. We get down there. And let me just say this. $150 a day, he was ripping us off. We were working sometimes 20 hours in one day. And we stayed in a room in the back of the warehouse where he kept all the fireworks. He had one sink. That was the only running water in the whole place. We drank out of that sink. We brushed our teeth out of the sink, but we didn't worry about bathing. And for two weeks, we worked 20 hours a day. would come in and crash on our cots. No air conditioning. 150 degrees. First of July, or, or end of June, rather. And we stayed in that place. Horrible conditions. I can't believe the police didn't come and arrest him and throw him in jail for child endangerment or something. I don't know. And we worked ourselves to the bone. And I'll never forget, we got a day off. And you know what happened? We got a day off. It was before. We, we'd already set all the tents up. It was right before we were going to start selling for 4th of July. And he said, take the day off. You guys deserve it. We deserve more than that. Here's your money. And so we had money, wads of cash in our hand. And you know what we did? We went down and we got a hotel room. And we took a shower. And we cleaned up. And we washed clothes. And then we said, we're going to get the best meal we can afford to buy. And we went down to Crackle Barrel. And we ate and ate and ate and ate. And man, we get back to the, I mean, it was wonderful. And I said, man, this is what being a preacher is all about right here. Hallelujah. Staying in hotels and eating Cracker Barrel, that's it. And, and so then we went and set up in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, kind of in the Smoky Mountains. And, and that was our tent. And we get there and we set the tent up. And it's already, actually, the tent's already set up. We load it all up with all of our, our fireworks. And uh, we get that done, and, and we get our cots in there, and, and we got our big box fans. And, and uh, the first people that came by to buy fireworks was this couple, and they had a van, and they had some kids in it. And uh, they were um, 
they were the youth leaders, youth pastors at the Baptist church down the road. And uh, they began to talk to us and found out we were Bible school students. They left, and about 30 minutes later, they come pulling back in. And they walked up, and they said, listen, um, we just felt like we want you all to come over to our house. And we want you guys to eat supper with us. And, um, and, and we, you can come take a shower. I guess they kind of identified that we needed one. And you come take a shower, and, and uh, we're going to make supper for you guys. Well, one of us had to stay there, so my cousin went first, and he went and ate and took a shower and came back and said, oh, man, the spaghetti was amazing. They're the nicest people in the world. So now it was my turn, and I drove over there, and, and we had a wonderful connection with this couple and their family, little kids, their sweet little kids, and we had a great time that evening. And uh, we sold about $400 worth of fireworks that first day, and we were already counting the suits, you know. Man, I'm telling you what, we get to keep probably $50 of this. I'm like almost a quarter of a suit right there. It's going to be awesome. And, and so we get our money, and, and then we lay down. And, and my cousin says, he said, hey, let's have devotion. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, we, we haven't. Let's have devotion tonight. And uh, we've been working so hard, we, we hadn't paid attention to anything. And, and so he sits down, and, and he opens his Bible, and he begins to read this scripture, and he starts preaching. And, I mean, he, he, gets, he gets to preach, and I'm sitting on my cot, and, man, he's standing up, and he's, like, screaming and preaching at me. And, I mean, he's giving this word, and he's got these three points, and, and I mean, he had even had a title, and, and, man, he's coming at me, and I'm, I'm going, hey, man, I'm, and, I, and he said, just raise your hands and pray. And so I, I'm praying. I thought I almost gave him an offering right there. And, and uh, so he closes his Bible and sits down. He says, okay, it's your turn. And I'm like, oh. Oh, man, uh, so uh, how long does this have to be? He's like, oh, yeah, just a little devotion. And so I'm like, okay, oh, I know Psalms. Yeah, Psalms 23. There it is. And uh, I, I got up and I said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I thought, Aren't you glad that the Lord is your shepherd and you shall not want? He said, Amen, Amen. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Aren't you glad he maketh me to lie down? In, I repeated every verse and that was my sermon Bible study for the night. Amen. And my cousin said, amen, thank God it's over. No, and, uh, and we shut our Bibles, and we laid down in our cots, and we zipped up our sleeping bags, and we start to drift off to sleep. We hear a, a car come pulling up and brakes screeching, doors slamming. Several people come walking into the tent. My cousin says, hey, man, we're closed. Come back tomorrow. And before we knew it, we hear people screaming at us, and I felt a cold, hard object forced into the side of my head. And I open my eyes, and I look up, and there's a man in a ski mask. One of them has a shotgun. He's standing over me, and it's in my head. The other one has a handgun with a ski mask on, and he's standing behind my cousin. And he says, put your hands on your head and lay down on your stomachs. He starts threatening us, and and we didn't know what to do. I, I just began to pray, oh, oh, in Jesus' name, dear God, dear God, help us. 
they start taking fireworks and they start loading into the bag. Well, one of the guys has that shotgun and he's, he's just waiting for us to move. And, and they're screaming profanities at us. And, and uh, my cousin, the preacher, he rolls over and said, listen, man, he said, you don't have to do this. He said, Jesus loves you. And you can walk in. The guy says, shut up. Cusses at him. He said, I'm going to blow your head off if you open your mouth again and look at me one more time. They rob us right there. And I can promise you this, that in the few moments I'm laying there, I'm beginning to pray, God, keep your hand upon us. God, help us. God, watch over me. God, I don't know what's going to happen now. They walk around behind us, and, and one of them comes over to my cousin, and both of them are standing there, and he puts the gun in the back of my cousin's head. And he says, we've got to do something because you've heard our voice, and, and you can identify us. He asked my cousin the most absurd question. He says, you, wanna, you want me to knock you out, or you want me to blow your head off? Well, who's going to answer that question the wrong way? And my cousin said, just knock me out, just knock me out. My cousin had his hands on the back of his head, and, and uh, the guy brings the butt of that gun down onto his head, and it hits his finger, and it severs his finger, this one right here, almost completely in half. The only thing that's holding on is just a piece of skin. And my cousin just lays down. He walks over to me, and the other gentleman comes around. He spins a cylinder in the gun and, and cocks that hammer and puts it on the back of my head, and I can still feel it to this day. And he says, it's your turn. I thought for that moment, I thought, Pastor Isaacson, that he was going to pull that trigger and that was going to be the end of me. And when that few seconds it seemed like hours, my mind began to race and I began to pray. I started asking the question. I said, God, what have I done with my life? And God, what, what have I truly accomplished? And I had to come to the conclusion that I've accomplished nothing spiritual in God's kingdom. I prayed for my mom. I said, God, if, if I don't make it tonight, help my mom. It's going to wreck her life to lose a child. I prayed and I said, God, forgive me for never teaching a Bible study, for never reaching one of my friends that I had ample opportunity to reach. God, forgive me for accepting a call to preach a couple months ago and never doing anything to accomplish that call and never preaching a message. God, forgive me. At that moment, my calling became real. It became in my face. And I said, God, I cannot, I cannot go to hell knowing that I have not fulfilled what you have asked me to do. I pleaded with him. And those couple of seconds had passed by, which seemed like hours. I came to this conclusion and I said, God, if I don't make it tonight, I pray that you would forgive me. And I would rest in your arms. He didn't shoot me, obviously. He brought that gun down the back of my head and put 12 stitches. They took off. They jumped in their vehicle and they raced away. I laid there for a few moments. And when I turned my head, the, the blood like a wave of water washed over and began to pull up into my sleeping bag. My cousin goes, he keeps asking, he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. He said, I thought he shot you. He said, what did he do? I said, I, he just hit me on the back of the head. He said, man, it sounded so loud, it was like a gunshot. He said, I think there's something wrong with my finger. And he holds it up, and his finger is literally hanging down. He said, oh, dear God, my finger. Every time his heart would beat, blood would squirt up out of it. So he's holding it, his wrist, trying to keep it. I said, I said, he goes, are those guys still here? I said, I don't know, but we got to get out of here. I said, on the count of three, we're going to crawl out of our sleeping bags, crawl underneath this table, and we're going to run down the street. The parking lot that we were in was full of gravel. 
We counted to three and two boys never ran so fast in all their life. We slid out of those sleeping bags on our bellies underneath the tables. We jumped up and we ran like you would not believe. We run up into the parking lot and the lady that works at the gas station and her boyfriend were standing out front. And we've got blood all over my face, running down the front of me, all over the back of my head. My cousin's got blood dripping off his elbow. We come running up, and they're like, dear God, have you all been in a wreck? We said, no, we just got robbed. She ran inside, and before she could even call the police, a police officer just so happens to be driving by and pulls into the parking lot. And when he sees us, he jumps out. He radios the ambulance, and within a few minutes, they show up, and they rush us to the hospital. We landed at the hospital that every nurse became instantly our mothers. They were babying us. They asked us if we wanted popsicles and lollipops. No, I'm just kidding about that. Oh, honey, poor honey, are you okay? Honey this and honey that. And I thought, these are the kindest people in the whole world. They said, this isn't our town. We're so sorry this happened to you. Please don't think bad of Clarksville, Tennessee. I thought bad of Clarksville, Tennessee. Something happened in my life at that moment. I went back to Bible school with a couple suits, by the way. I walked in, and there was a mandate upon my life. I couldn't be the same person that I was. I couldn't just hide in the shadows. I couldn't not talk to anybody. I couldn't just randomly walk to classes and go through my life. You see, something had had defined me. It was my defining moment where I looked at my future. I looked at my past. And I decided that I must do what God has called me to do. You see, your story is going to be different from mine. Your story is different from mine. But I think everyone has to have the defining moment. Every life must have that moment. Or you say, I've got to do what God's asked me to do. I don't believe you'll ever be fulfilled. I don't believe that you'll ever be able to go through life and have contentment and peace until you come to that conclusion that, God, I turn my life over to you. I went to general conference that year, and I believe it was in Iowa. If my memory serves me correctly. And I was walking through the missions booth, the foreign missions booth, and, and somebody handed me... Uh, a dollar bill from some country. I don't even know what country it was. And I was oh, thank you. Do I owe you money for this? They're like, no, just pray for us. And so I, I can do that. I may be broke, but I can pray for you. And I folded it up and I stuffed it in my pocket. And I don't know who the preacher was that got up to preach that night, but they preached about doing God's will and would you be willing to go where God sent you. And again, again, I ran down to that altar And I committed my life all over again to him. And I said, God, I'll I'll be your preacher. God, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'll go wherever you want me to go. It made such an impact in my life. I was walking away from that altar and I reached into my pocket. And I felt that, that bill. And I pulled it out. And I sat down in the first seat. And I wrote general conference. And I put the date. 19, I hate to even say this, 1998. Or no, 1997. It's 96. I don't even know what date is on there. And I wrote that out. And I put on there in big letters, where he leads, I will follow. And for years, I carried it around in my wallet. For years, I carried that around. 
And it was a constant reminder, a constant reminder that I've accepted this call. And every altar call after that, there's been confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that God has continued to ask me, will you still go where I lead? Will you still do what I've called you to do? You see, ladies and gentlemen, your calling doesn't just end with you saying yes. That's where it begins. And God wants to know, will you still do what I've asked you to do? You want to know what I believe the will of God is for every person in this room? I believe the perfect will of God, like I said in the beginning, is for you. This has been an episode of Axiom Youth Student Ministries. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you've enjoyed and we hope you'll come back for the next one. Thank you for tuning in.